Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cane, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Book 4 of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, Susan, Chapters 6 through 10. Let's start the show. Following the dinner at the mayor's house, the quartet of Roland, Elaine, and Cuthbert find themselves in a Mahesian standoff with the big coffin hunters at the Traveler's Rest. This exposes both sides to more knowledge about the other. As the big coffin hunters try to learn the Cotet's secret, Roland falls more in love with Susan, and he and the others find out that Hambry is hiding much from the affiliation. Susan and Roland give in to their passions, but what might it cost them? Dun, dun, dun. So Jay, this set of chapters has a lot of smart people doing smart things. We've got tradecraft. There's a lot of secrecy going around. We have subterfuge. We have characters leading each other on in different ways, exposing some information, exposing other information. And it was just a lot of fun for me as somebody who is interested in these political machinations and and intrigue. It, It appeals to the part of me that has always enjoyed spy novels and intrigue and mysteries and a lot of that comes out in this section and it was for me a a fun read yeah we touched on this a little bit on a previous episode when we talked about how roland's father gave him that information dump and we were so glad that it was a smart person giving all the information he had to another smart character allowing that other that second character roland in this case to actually act on good, solid information, rather than the plot being hinged around misunderstandings or missing information. It is rewarding to read a story or follow a plot that is based on, as you say, smart people doing smart things for smart reasons. Finding reasons for all of that intelligence to still lead people astray or to still have conflict. It's good. Oh, I agree. And, it, you know, we start off with this scene in The Traveler's Rest where through a series of misadventures that begins with Shimi spilling some, I believe it's basically tobacco juice on one of the big coffin hunters' feet. Oh, it's even worse. It's all of the leftover unfinished drinks combined Ah, into a bucket, which they then later resell to the non-discerning customers (laughs) that come in the next day. We've all been there. Reminds me of my youth. One of the big coffin hunters threatening Shimi's life if he doesn't lick his boots. We get Elaine with his slingshot pointed at the first big coffin hunter. And, you know, this seems all in character. Smart people doing smart things like, hey, I'm not going to allow this poor boy to be humiliated or possibly killed. So, hey, I'm going to pull out my slingshot and try to settle the situation down. And then the next big coffin hunter thinks he's got the drop on Elaine. Mm -hmm. But then Cuthbert's got the drop on him. But then Jonas has got the drop on him, and then finally Roland comes in and, you know, finally has the drop on everyone. And it's just sort of this whole buildup of everyone seeming to outsmart the other, everyone being in character, and it's this good, tense, exciting scene that really plays into what we talked about last week when, is Roland's story going to be a Western? And sure enough, as Eddie says, oh yeah, all of Roland's stories are Westerns. Uh 
And this is totally a Western situation. Yeah. Continuing with the smart people doing smart things, each one of the the characters involved in this Mahian standoff is doing the thing that is like it's accurate to their character, but it's also the thing that they think is the best move. Yes. You know, when it's the the good guy defending the weak member of society, he's doing what he needs to do to maintain justice in the world. Cuthbert saw that that's not even a choice. Right. He has to defend people who are weaker than he is. And the bad guy says, well, I'm not going to let you hurt my buddy. <laughs> the dominoes keep stacking up until ultimately, luckily for our heroes, the last domino to be put in place is Roland. And that's why he wins the Mahian standoff. Because this isn't a Mexican standoff. Mexican standoff would have everybody pointing the gun at one other person and nobody could get out of it, right? Right. If you had three people, each one is pointing the gun at one of the other two people. Yep. I think no, that's I, the Mexican standoff. So I would agree. We, we don't have a reservoir dog situation here at all. We've got, I think, as you put it, the dominoes falling down. And th it's interesting for me because this really is a preview of the rest of these chapters. There's a lot of dominoes that are going to be set up along the way here. So as the big coffin hunters learn more about Roland and Elaine and figure, hey, there's something wrong here with these people. Mm -hmm. Let's go on their back trail and try to figure out who they are. And that sets up a, hey, they're going to find out that Roland and his quartet's backstory doesn't check out exactly. But at the same time, Roland realizes, hey, there's something about Jonas and these guys that we should know about. They might be failed gunslingers. And yep. the other dominoes that are falling into place are what was set up in the last chapter when Rhea, the witch of the coups, put a post-hypnotic suggestion in Susan that we see play out in this chapter. We see that domino fall and we find out that Roland and his quartet start to count things and they're learning, hey, there's way more horses than there should be. And look, there's oil here. So just a lot of stuff happening and you can sense the dominoes are falling. But by the end of these chapters, when Roland and Susan finally make love, that there's going to be more dominoes that are going to fall and we might not like the outcome I'm anticipating. The fact that Roland and his two friends ended up in that standoff was actually a bad move. They did the right thing. They defended each other and they defended Shimi, but they also completely exposed themselves as being much more formidable than anybody would have given them credit otherwise. Yep. They could have flown under the radar for far longer and used that unknown danger or, or resourcefulness. And They were basically an unknown quantity within the town of Hambury. What uh, nobody knows or, or could possibly suspect is that these guys are, I mean, Roland is a gunslinger and his two friends are gunslingers in all but title. They have finished just as much training and are just as dangerous and formidable as Roland is, but everybody just sees them as these spoiled rich kids who are hanging out. Right. And suddenly now there's a knife to Jonas's back and he knows much better now. He knows that I'm not going to let anybody, any of these three guys especially, get the drop on me again. Yep. So that in a way, they kind of wasted that one moment of you'd have no idea who you're dealing with moment in their efforts to help Shimi. And I don't think that was wasted because I think it was good that they helped Shimi. But at the same time, now they've they've tipped their hand. Exactly. And that's a good transition to what I want to talk about is that even when we do have smart people doing smart things, 
even underneath that, there's usually one or two things that make smart people do stupid things. One of those could be love in Roland's case. And you can sense that Elaine and Cuthbert are a little bit worried about Roland falling in love. At one point, Elaine moves really quick and picks a blonde hair off of uh, Roland's shoulder and was like, uh-oh, uh-huh. this, this could be trouble. And they sense it. And Roland has this great struggle throughout these chapters of, I have a duty to perform that my father sent me on this quest to find out what's happening here. And I'm worried about the affiliation and what's going to happen with Farson, the good man. But at the same time, he's falling in love with Susan. And throughout, we can see him balancing this, even in the midst of their flirting and getting to know each other better. There's this constant pull of, uh, yeah, we're flirting here, but how many horses do you see down there, by the way? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, we should meet. Let's meet at the Sitco just because like, that's a good romantic place to meet, but we can also find out about the oil. So, um, yeah, it's important that I see you after dark <laughs> all alone. Yeah, that that struggle between honor and love is, I think, the main theme of this whole section of, of the book. Perhaps the the whole section about Susan. Um, you know, like all all ten chapters in this section of Wizard and Glass is. I think it's about that struggle, and Roland and his friends are sent away to get them out of harm's way. They're not sent there to discover or keep their eyes open for non-affiliation war plans or anything like that they just stumble into it and because of who they are and what their qualifications as it were are they are resourceful enough to start to do something about it and then if they were there as like just soldiers doing their duty none of this love affair stuff would have been able to creep in Mm -hmm. but it does and there and it makes things difficult it kind of makes me wonder though i think we understand why roland falls in love with susan she's presented as this truly amazing young woman mm-hmm. not only in her appearance but in every aspect she's intelligent she's resourceful she's strong she's experienced it with all sorts of things in in her industry of keeping horses and running a farm and all these things about her are incredibly appealing. And on top of that, everybody describes her as being beautiful beyond compare, right? Yes. So Roland has this very intimate moment when he meets her on the the dark road alone. But why don't the other two kind of have their own like love uh, quadrangle sort of thing going on? Like, I'm not saying everybody has to just flip out over over susan but elaine and cuthbert seem so level-headed about this they're also 14 year old boys with the same physical desires and i have two comments on that one is that both elaine and cuthbert show a lot of deference to roland from the moment back in roland first beat court they say that there's been a change and that Roland is no longer a peer or an equal of them, but he is a gunslinger, and he, they are not. And even throughout these chapters, we see them looking at Roland in a different light. He's their leader, easily. Right. So I think that that might be part of it. He's the leader. He made the first claim. He knew her first. But I think the second part is, you know, when Elaine is in the market and Susan passes him a note surreptitiously, he turns around, and when he looks at her the first time, 
he's stunned by how beautiful she is and really is more like, wow, I could see exactly why Roland fell for her. So and the, it might be worth it if it's as risky as it is. Yeah. So I, and, and they haven't had an opportunity to see all the other aspects of Susan that Roland has. They haven't had those more intimate conversations and, and one-on-one time with her. So I think it would be very easy for them to fall in love. I have a sense that there's enough conflict on the horizon brewing that adding a, a love triangle or a love quadrangle isn't going to be- necessarily benefit the story. Yeah, and I don't think that the story is missing that. I It just occurred to me that these other two members of Roland's gang should be as easily susceptible to Susan's charms. Yes. And it seems that they are not. Maybe it was just that chance meeting on the road. If Roland hadn't done that, and the first time he met her was at that fancy dinner, and somebody explained to him, as happened, that Susan is arranged to bear the mayor a child, and he would have said, okay, yep, moved on with his evening. And he probably never would have thought twice about Susan, because she's off limits. And instead, so we get this balance of duty and love. I think for me, the first key passage for that was when they're flirting and he insists on her, you can call me Will and I'll call you Susan. And and then finally, yes, there's something else I must ask entirely. May I? And she says, I. And he's like, are you for the affiliation? And she sort of is, <laughs> whoa, wait, that sort of came out of nowhere. Not exactly what I was expecting. Um, it turns out that he, a few pages later, says... He's confused, right? He's trying to figure out his duty and his lo- and he's like, I just have to trust someone. Right. And you're here. And he is caught up in this game, which is more than a game. I mean, there's lives at stake, but he doesn't know who to trust. There's no one in the town that seems to be a friendly face and everyone has these ulterior motives. So he has to turn to Susan and say, I have to trust someone and, and you're the person I need to trust. And he lays the secret on her. And as she starts to think through it, she realizes that there's been things that have been hidden from her over the past months ever since her father died, and that maybe there was more to her father's death than she originally thought. It becomes harder and harder for her to accept that there's any other explanation. Yes. When she starts to put all the details together and square up the fact that, hey, there are more horses here, and the townspeople are lying to these three boys about how many healthy horses are born on a regular basis. And these these are lies that are easily found out by people in town, but not by strangers necessarily. And when she starts to put it together, she realizes, hey, my father would have been somebody who was honorable and would have stood up and said something. And maybe that was the cause of his death. And And as she starts to put that together, that does two things in an interesting way. It pushes her away from Roland in some ways, because there's not just Roland as a potential lover. But it's Roland is somebody who's giving her hints about or knowledge that she didn't have, and it it confuses her. And she also has this struggle then of, what's my duty? What information do I need to share with Roland? As well as, hey, he's not just here to find things out, but he's also in love with me. So it's it's this interesting concept that she falls into as well. And I don't think she's quite as well suited for that. You don't get the sense as Roland is. Roland's obviously been trained. Yeah, Roland has that advantage of having the really hard and thorough training that the gunslinger training entails. So I think that helps him stay maybe focused a little bit longer, but he still ultimately caves. He does. And it's interesting to look at this young Roland 
and his views on romance and love versus the Roland who's telling the story to Eddie and Susanna and Jake. And he is a much different man now than he was as a boy when he was with Susan. Yeah. And and I think like these chapters touch on Roland's romantic nature in a, a lot of interesting ways. There's one passage where Roland is ruminating on the landscape of his heart Mm. and how he realizes that he knows that landscape well and i thought that it was pretty fascinating that this character who we're reminded many times over is 14 or 15 years old and while yes he is the age of an adult in his society and he actually has become a gunslinger and passed that that test as well he's still 14 years old so I don't know how much philosophy and introspection that kinds of stuff that that they're taught. I know that they are they do have teachers like that like uh, Vanet, his teacher would talk about philosophy and what is truth and and stuff like that as part of his gunslinger training. But to know the landscape of his heart well, it just seems like maybe not something that Roland especially at 14 would think and Roland of 100 years old or whatever he is when he's riding in Blaine, Eddie confronts him with this idea of his nature that he's never considered before. And yet when he was 14, he's like, oh yeah, I know the landscape of my heart. No problem. Got that handled. So, And it's interesting. It's the landscape of his heart as if, you know, when we think of heart, we think matters of love. Mm -hmm. From what we've seen, the only people that Roland has loved are his father his mother, and now Susan. Like, he doesn't have a very robust experience of of love throughout the years. You would think, like, as a 14-year-old, I'm sure we all are, we have convictions that we believe in deeply. Like, oh, yes, Lost is the best TV show of all time, or The Stand is the greatest book of all time, (laughs) and I'll fight anyone to the death for that. But when it comes to matters of love, it seems a little odd that he knows the landscape of his heart. Right. Because as far as we know, he's never been in love before. No. It hasn't been described to us in the story. So, And then there's a, another passage in the book talking about the deep romance of Roland's nature. And the, the word nature kind of set off a little alarm bell for me because of what I was just uh, mentioning about how Eddie said, you can't, you know, you shouldn't apologize for your nature. And so we're, we're talking about Roland's nature and that a big and very important aspect of that nature is this deep romance. One of the takeaways that I got from that was that that Roland's nature is an alloy of practicality that's made stronger and more resilient by mixing this romance into it. Mm. Like you make a sword by combining different kinds of metals, like it can be very sharp, but also flexible so it won't break. That might be the thing that makes Roland so formidable, the thing that makes him never give up, the thing that makes him resilient enough to keep going when everybody else who has joined him on any of his quests have failed or fallen the wayside. It's that deep romance that is the secret. That's the secret ingredient. And all that makes me wonder, and I'm sure we'll get to it soon, is why Roland feels the need to tell this story to Eddie and Susanna and Jake. We know that it's been sparked by the Thinny. Mm-hmm which they're encountering along I-70 in their world. And that's what brings back these memories to Roland. And he's telling this story. 
but the fact that the story's substance is less about the thinny and more about this romance between he and Susan and what comes of it, it makes me wonder what insight Roland has into what's happening with his current quartet and what it might mean for Eddie and Susanna. I don't know if it does or not. I, I haven't read ahead to know. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder what the consequences of what's going to happen with young Roland and Susan and what might happen with Roland and Susanna and Eddie. And I don't know. I'm just speculating. Moderately fascinating. <laughs> it's been interesting over the course of what, almost 200 pages, that it's been very much just young Roland. So we, we haven't heard anything from Eddie yet, which is unusual, mm-hmm. with 200 pages without any smart-ass remarks from Eddie. But we, here we are. But it seems like he might have a lot to say about this story, and I'd be interested to hear their perspective. Because while we haven't heard from them, at least when I'm reading these pages, they're always in the back of my mind as the interpreters of this story, the listeners of this story, the people who are going to have to react to this story and wonder what they're learning about Roland and what they're learning about his quest. Right. I mean, they're more than just the proxy for the audience in this case, because they have real skin in this game. They're on a daily basis learning more about this man who brought them into this world and is leading them through this world and has set them on this quest alongside him. And every once in a while, they get sort of maybe this inkling that he's super dangerous. Can we really trust him? Yeah. I think as they have grown closer together and come to really start to think of each other as a family and this whole concept of katet has become more and more deeply ingrained, there's still room for that little bit of doubt because both Eddie and Susanna reflect on how Roland is still very mysterious and there's still so much about him that they don't know. And they still think of him or, or they maybe they just need to remind themselves every once in a while that he's a killer. Yeah. He's a super dangerous person. And while he might be troubled and he might be having a hard time right now and he's thinking about it, the story of this romance, this forbidden romance with Susan Delgado that humanizes him in a lot of ways. There are still parts of the story that talk about how dangerous he is, yeah. even when he was 14. Yeah. It would be interesting if instead of telling this story, he told the story of Tull. Yeah, that would have a much uh, different impact. Oh yeah, I killed 36 people, by the way. Yeah. Every living human being in the town, I killed. So, uh, you want to grab a burger later? or <laughs> It's made of threaded meat. Uh, and we do get senses, even within this story, of young Roland, of how dangerous he is. Yeah. The one that immediately comes to my mind is after Roland and Susan make love, and the hypnotic suggestion that Rhea has put into Susan's head has caused her to walk away from Roland and go down to the river and start to cut her hair. Roland has this sense in his mind, like something's wrong. She's not here. Do I have time to go get my clothes on? Nope. I got to just run. I'm going to run naked and do whatever needs to be done and not think through all these things because that might not be the most dangerous situation, but it shows how his mind works as a man of action. The most important thing is doing something and getting something done. I know you pointed out a, a different instance of Roland being dangerous with Shimi. Mm-hmm. Shimi, after being saved by Elaine and others, has looked onto these three young men as his heroes, basically. He's just in yeah. awe of them and, wow, you guys are great, and Elaine, I'll do anything for you. Of course, he doesn't call him Elaine, but 
I'll do anything for you. You're such a great man. And he's always talking with him. But when he sees Roland, he's not so sure about him, especially when Roland gets that glint in his eyes. Yeah. The, something that makes Shimi realize that as dangerous and scary as Jonas is, that Roland may be even more dangerous. He might. He is just as much a killer, I think is how the book puts it, just as much a killer as Jonas, perhaps worse. And we know that that is true. Yes. I mean, at 14, I don't think Roland has killed as many people as Jonas has at that moment in time. But by the time we get to know Roland or Roland of the our present in the story in Topeka, yeah, he's killed way more people than Jonas has ever killed. I'm guessing Roland has not killed anybody up to this point. It seems like it. Yeah. He came pretty close to killing Court. He did. But I don't think he's, I mean, we don't hear any of the, their trip out to Hambury, but I don't think he, as far as we know, he hasn't killed anyone. They're keeping their guns undercover still, and they're just in town. Right. Yeah. So we got a lot more world building in this section of the book, which is pretty cool. We certainly started off uh, this whole story about Susan with a heavier dose of magic, I think, than we've really experienced before. Yes. So like through this magic glass sphere that Rhea is both keeping safe and also using against the direct order of Jonas and company. So there's clearly this thing that's kind of like, you know, a crystal ball. It definitely has true magical properties. We see that Rhea is able to look through it and see things that are happening right now. And it seems that like this glass, it has a great deal of power, but it also has a toll. Using it has a cost. And this is apparent when Rhea first looks at it, the light that shines from within it onto her face makes her look like a young woman and that totally transforms the way Susan sees her for a moment. But now after she's been using it for weeks and weeks, it's actually drained life force from her and she looks even older and more decrepit than she did at the beginning of the story. And considering how horrible looking she was described yeah. at the starting point, I it's got to be really bad. She probably looks like the Crypt Keeper at this point. I like the idea that magic gives you power, but it also costs you something. Yes. There, there's sort of that monkey's paw agreement to using the, the magic. It doesn't come free. No. I think she uses her powers in the first few chapters, but it wasn't until these chapters that I noticed that she's able to like shoot fire from her yeah. fingers. Like she lights up the the fireplace after she throws the cat in it. And I was like, whoa, like I didn't catch it the first read through that. Oh yeah. She's actually, it's not just magic that's embodied inside objects like the sphere, but she has it, whether it's innate or if she's learned something along the way, but she also has magic, which really opens up, you know, I, I know we've already seen magic doors and transportation mm -hmm. between worlds, but the fact that there are actual magic users walking amongst people. Yeah, maybe she studied at the Citadel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think the people at the Citadel would be like, oh, that's just an old tale from Maester So-and-So. Remember Rhea the Coos who said she had a pink ball that she could see things through? Oh, a rumpf, a rumpf, a rumpf. So that's not the only new world building piece that we learn about. Um, we also see the Thinny not only just be this 
weird rumbling noise, high-pitched noise on the outskirts of town, but it has these tentacles that come out and yeah. starts talking to people in these evil-sounding voices. I mean, that seems a stretch from the thinny... I, I, if I were Eddie and I was hearing this story, I would make sure that I did not have my back to the thinny along I-70 as I was yeah. listening to the story. I'd sort of scooch around back and be looking straight at it because it's a little uh, scary. It did give me a Lovecraftian Cthulhu Stephen King the Mist type of situation here. Hey, what the hell's coming out of this thing? Yeah. The the thinny that they were experiencing directly in Topeka seems like there's no sentience to it. It's simply a natural phenomena of the world breaking down. So the the barrier between worlds is growing thin. Right. And therefore it's an unnatural thing and it could be harmful, but it's not seeking to do harm to people if they happen to get within its grasp. It's not calling to them. It's not whispering, trying to trick them into jumping into it. Right. But the thinny in Mahis, it's clearly like that. It seems to have a sentience. It seems to be, and not just sentient, but also evil. It wants to hurt the people that come near it. Yes. That's a really different thinny than what, what we've been shown thus far. And maybe it's not even the same thing. I don't know. but Or maybe if we do see that thinnies are portals into other worlds, the other world that the one in Topeka leads to is a much tamer world than the other world that the thinny by Mahis is. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be in the world that that one leads to. You know, and it's similar. We discussed in a previous podcast about how Blaine travels and, you know, they get through the outskirts of Lud and all of a sudden they're in these wastelands with these awful, horrible creatures. But when Blaine gets through to its final destination in Topeka, things have settled down and are a little bit more normal. We wondered if maybe perhaps it passed through a thinny along the way. I think they did. I, I think that Eddie and Roland speculate that on the page, that we passed through a thinny and now we're in this other version of the world that had Captain Trips and, and all that. So they're on the other side of the thinny. So who knows what's on the thinny on the other side of Mahis, but you are correct that it is very evil. And the townspeople know this, and that's why they set these fires to try to, I don't know if it's distracted or at least put this barrier of smoke between it and the town. And it seems like, hey, we know a couple cows or rams might get sacrificed along the way, and that's just the price of dealing with this thing that's in this canyon. Mm-hmm. Maybe the other side of that thinny is like the same place that the mist was uh, exposed the world to, right? I wonder, yeah. There's a supermarket just on the other side. Got crazy religious lady in it. We also noted that it's not just Roland who talks about how the world has moved on, but the Pepe? Is that what he decided his pronunciation was? Yeah, I think that's our, our best guess. That... So the Pepe is sent on a mission by Jonas to go on the back trail of, of Roland and crew to find out a little bit more about what's happening. And he comments on how he can't really remember a lot from his youth. Time is much softer now. Mm. And he's also sort of confused about, hey, my memory's not as good as Jonas's and I don't remember all these things. And it's just sort of time has moved on. So more instances of that. And it's interesting to see it in this time period as well, from a different perspective, we usually see it from Roland's perspective or some older people. But here's someone who seems relatively younger, but he's sort of on the outskirts of civilization, maybe. And even he's sort of confused by things. Yeah, I think that's why it stood out all the more for me, because it was, we really don't know how long Roland has been kicking around. But this was 
a long time ago in Roland's life. Yeah. And Roland talks about now that the world has moved on and time works differently and direction can't trust a map or anything like that. I've sort of like assumed that or gotten used to the idea that maybe things have gotten worse or accelerated to the point where they're more noticeable this way within Roland's lifetime because it, his lifetime has been so long mm. that to go back to when Roland was just 14 and it's already happening then. I know people were, were still saying the world has moved on, but it felt like this was before it moved on as much as it did by the time we first meet or first explore Roland's world. But I guess it's it, that's why it, it just kind of jumped out at me that De Pape... <laughs> I'm probably just going to start calling him Depap because that's what I—that's how I said it in my head when I read the book. That he's experiencing this, so that he can't even remember his own lifetime, and he's not that old. Like I think he's described as like thirty-ish, maybe. The other thing that caught me off guard in this section, or along those same lines, is that we still see more pieces of the world before it moved on. So there's the Sitco and there's these pumps that some of them are still working and pumping oil, even though it can't be refined. Yes, 19 of them. 19. Ooh, I wonder why. But at the same time, you know, and they talk about the old people and the old ones, how they used to do things. And, and that seems to be way far in the past because whatever happened that was doing the horrible things to the crops and the animals the people in uh, Mayus have at least been able to breed the horses again so that they're mostly back to normal. Yep. So we've gone through this sort of ups and downs of things were really bad back when the old ones happened, but now they're getting better. But we still have some of the stuff from that time that's still working. So I would love to see, and I don't think it exists, but sort of a time frame of whatever happened happened. And I don't know if we'll ever know whatever happened happened. I'm guessing that that's really not germane to the story but like a mid mid-world timeline yeah mid-world timeline of if stephen king was more in the george r. r martin world i'm sure we'd have a whole encyclopedia of a mid-world encyclopedia with the entire history from arthur of eld all the way through now we'd have the the roland deshane cookbook it would have one recipe burritos <laughs> burritos <laughs> Uh, what does Eddie call them? The uh, gunslinger burritos? Gunslinger burritos. They're always wrapped in some sort of leaf. Yeah, venison wrapped in a leaf. <laughs> they could also put together the um, Roland's fashion magazine. It would all be deer skins. And... It could be like in Forrest Gump and have 50 ways to cook lobstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> that might be Eddie's specialty. He was surely the master at that. Yeah. While bringing Roland up to health. I think we're starting to unintentionally move into fun stuff ahead of the game there, Jay. Yeah, it's always about fun stuff. So why don't we make it official and definitively move into our fun stuff section? All right, fun stuff. I, I never know if fun stuff is more for you and me or if our listeners are like, oh, they've already talked about the chapter now. I'm going <laughs> to end the podcast at that point. I'd love to look at the metrics for that. Oh, okay. They're 40 minutes in. It's fun stuff. Here's where we tune out. Fun stuff, not fun stuff. Click. As long as we're entertaining each other. I think we've achieved our mission. This is true. This is true. We've gotten little hints of religion in Roland's world. There still seems to be people who talk about Jesus and there's the Mannies, etc. But what's interesting is Cuthbert mentions, as they start to move towards the Thinny, I think they're in the canyon, and Cuthbert, who out of the three people in this cutet seems to be the most level-headed and more by-the-book Joe Friday type, says, are we going in? 
Let the recording angel note that I am against, although I offer no mutiny. This recording angel just seemed like such a neat idea of there's some sort of celestial being that's writing down everything that's happening in the world at any one time. You know, something like the Watcher in Marvel Comic mm -hmm. or, or Destiny of, of some sort. And he's writing everything down and there he is making a little asterisk in his or her book saying, yep, Cuthbert was against this. We'll have to note that. He's got this big quill scratching away in his moleskin notebook. We talked a little bit about the Mahian standoff that reminded you of a scene from Goodfellas, right? Yeah. And, you know, ironically, or, or maybe sadly, um, one of the actors who was in The Sopranos and Goodfellas just passed away this week. And I think he was in the scene where they tell Spider and Goodfellas, get your shine box. And it just made me think like when they tell Shimi, like he's got to lick his boots. Get your shine box, Shimi. Good old Michael Imperioli. Yes. Also in both Goodfellas and The Sopranos. Yes. Not to mention Hawaii Five O, where he plays a barber. Really? I yeah, uh, totally unaware of that. One thing that I thought was a just sort of an anachronistic question that I had was, where does the elastic band on Cuthbert's slingshot come from? Mm. Because the way it's described, it's some sort of elastic material, stretchy. That's how it works. Just like a Dennis the Menace or Bart Simpson type slingshot in this world where petroleum products and it feels like something like an elastic band wouldn't exist now i know like latex can you know comes from trees and perhaps there's still somebody who knows how to grow rubber trees and take the sap and turn it into latex rubber but it just seemed like like stephen king wrote this as just a given and where so many other things are just like that stuff doesn't exist here yeah we don't have stuff like i don't know zippers or velcro or zz top songs about velcro it's true actually they do have zz top songs about velcro never mind i retract my statement i also noted that the traveler's rest which seems to be the only restaurant in town everyone seems to end up there whether it's for gunfights or a, a cool iced tea also has great roast beef sandwiches. It made me wonder if it Mahisa's Arby's. They've got the meats. That's right. <laughs> they have those special sandwiches on uh, Thursday afternoons made from the fifth leg of the cow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the non-threaded stock sandwich. One of the things that I thought was really cool from a literary perspective was King used the word ka as a frame for the moment in the story where Roland and Susan finally do make love. Mm. And because both of them, especially Susan was sort of leaning heavily on Ka, that the Ka is, is, is like the wind and it's going to blow her away whether she wants it to or not. And here she is, she's finally being consumed by the storm of Ka. And when King gets to that moment in the story, he just writes, one whole paragraph, two letters, ka, and then the scene of the lovemaking. And then when that ends, one more paragraph, ka. And I thought that was a, a nice touch to just say, yep, it's all ka's fault. I can't believe that twice now in our Dark Tower podcast, we've complimented Stephen King on his writing of love scenes. 
it's not necessarily something he's known for in his dozens of other novels. And yet both Eddie and Susanna's first time, and now Roland and Susan's first time, we've both offered that he's done quite a good job with the writing of those scenes. Yeah. There's two interesting foreshadowing pieces that I thought were, well, actually, they're not very fun, unfortunately, but at one point, Roland says, although he didn't know it then, he would sleep badly for the rest of his life, indicating that things go downhill pretty quick for Roland here. And he's telling the story, of course, so he would be the best judge of that. But also there's this other time when Cuthbert looks at Roland, and it's described as Cuthbert sees the ghost of the man Roland would become and shivered, not knowing what he saw, only knowing that it was awful. And that gets back to the point you said earlier about how Shimi looks at Roland and realizes, hey, this man's a real killer. Cuthbert sees it too. You know, he sees a ghost of Roland. It's not a shadow of Roland. It's not, I see the future self, but ghost. It makes you see like the Roland I know is dead and the Roland that he's going to become is awful. Mm -hmm. Not fun stuff, but some nice foreshadowing, I thought. Yeah. Well, kind of a cheat at foreshadowing considering that King has already completely developed this character of Roland in his later in his life so that but yeah linking linking the Roland that we know as the present day Roland with the Roland that Cuthbert knew at that time in a way that we know is true and real and giving Cuthbert that moment of premonition it is a powerful moment for Cuthbert for Cuthbert to see in his friend in his lifelong friend and closest friend what kind of like agent of death he really can and will become and how being a gunslinger and serving the forces of good in the universe can still lead him down this path of if not evil pretty dark right and it's interesting because both Cuthbert and as you we said earlier both Cuthbert and Elaine have had the same training as Roland yep but Cuthbert is put off by what he sees when he looks at Roland and sees the ghost. And Elaine is this happy-go-lucky guy most of the time, too. So very distinct personalities, even though they've come up with the same training and a very similar background, that even the two of them can be shocked by what they see in Roland. Yeah. The last thing in our fun stuff is uh, some iTunes reviews. So thank you to all of our listeners who have sent in iTunes reviews. We appreciate them. and. Please keep them coming. iTunes reviews help more people discover our show, which helps expand our audience. It is worth your time to send in a review. And not only that, but it makes Jay and I feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. And since we're two bitter old men, we need all of that that we can get. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes Roland's just too dark and crabby. We need some sunshine from you, our listeners. (laughs) One of the recent reviews we got was from somebody who goes by the handle of Izodius, and he titled his review, Great Experience, Five Stars. I love listening to this cast. It's a nice review of the plot to refresh my memory, then exposition on it by the hosts. Great place for new and old readers. Thanks for that, Izodius. Are you sure that's not Izodius and that this person is a fan of Izod shirts? I guess that's possible. You never know. Anyhow, thank you for the nice review. That is uh, good. That's entirely what we're looking for, both new and old readers. If this is your first time through, we can help you be a guide. And uh, Mm -hmm. if you 
have been through these books once, twice, many times before. Hopefully we can offer you some new insight and hopefully you can comment back to us and give us some insight. I know I saw some interesting things on Twitter this week that sort of illuminated some of my understanding of certain books. So, And then uh, our most recent review comes from somebody by the name of Mojo Pin 12. This review is titled One of My Favorite Podcast. Mojo Pin 12 says, This is a go-to podcast for Dark Tower fans. The candor of the two hosts is entertaining and humorous. They also give old school, a la Family Guy style, 80s references, which they usually apologize for doing, but always get a big laugh from me as they discuss the content in the Dark Tower books, adding to the flavor of the talks. For good, comprehensive, entertaining reviews on Dark Tower books and Stephen King Fair, look no further. This podcast is worth your time. Wow. Wow. That is a stunning review. Thank you very much, Mojo Pin 12. Yes. Yes, thank you. That is an incredible review. And thank you for encouraging us to put more 80s references in. We'll continue to do that. Yes. Remember, you asked for it. You can blame Mojo Pin 12 for all Weird Al references going forward. <laughs> and uh, those are all of our recent reviews. Well, thank you very much. If you would like to be featured on an upcoming episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, be sure to make your review on iTunes today while supplies last. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 4 of the Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, Interlude, and Come Reap, Chapters 1 through 4. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening.